Our final session turns to uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 31 through 39. Um, I'm sure we might get a chance to do this as well, but since this is the last session, let me just uh, officially say my thanks one more time. Thanks to Pastor Randy. Uh, thanks to the church for the facility here with Pastor Chad. Uh, all of you who are here, it's been a, such an enjoyable time for me interacting with you, getting a chance to meet you, and also reacting to the discussions that we're having. It's a great joy for me to have brothers and sisters here in Bakersfield. And please know that we'll be praying for you. And when you do remember, please pray for me and the school as well, Westminster Seminary, California. Small school that's uh, 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 trying to be faithful in its desire to serve the Lord and the church. And so when you do remember, remember us as well. We want to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. The final section in this uh, uh, book of Romans up to uh, uh, the, the sections that we determined to work on this weekend. I'm going to read the whole text myself as we hear God's word being proclaimed. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If God, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Condemn Christ Jesus, who is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is where Paul is summing up some of the discussions he's had thus far. You might have noticed that Paul is a pastor first before he is a theologian. He's serving the church as he declares to them the great truths of the gospel of grace. And oftentimes as he engages in this teaching, he can't help himself. He can't help himself that at times he breaks out in praise, worship, preaching, and doxology. In one of the sections, John Stott comments of this kind of reaction of Paul that as he discusses, he cannot help himself to emotionally be declaring the graces of God. He says, it's of great importance to note in these sections of Romans that theology, our belief about God, and doxology, our worship of God, should never be separated. On the one hand, there can be no doxology without theology. It's not possible to worship an unknown God. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who He is and what He has done. Worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. On the other hand, 
There should be no theology without doxology. There is something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate object for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. No, the true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship, as it did Paul. Our place is on our faces before God in adoration. As I believe Bishop Handley Mole said at the end of the last century, we must, quote, beware equally of undevotional theology and of an untheological devotion. Let me say that again. We should be equally aware of undevotional theology and of an untheological devotion. Theology and doxology go hand in hand. That as we study these truths of the gospel of grace, we cannot help but to be led by Paul to the presence of God in worship before him. And as he ends this section, before he moves on to objections afterwards in chapter 9, mind you, chapter 9 begins with a lot of depressing comments about how, how anguished he is. From the peak of the end of chapter 8, nobody didn't just stop at chapter 8. They went, began chapter 9. The drop is tremendous, which is an interesting juxtaposition. But at the end of chapter 8, he pauses to answer four un unanswerable questions, beginning with a summative question when he says, what then shall we say in response to this? We've talked about chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, and in summary form, 1, 2, 3, 4. What then shall we say in response to this? Paul calls upon his readers to react to what he has said. He is not satisfied in having expounded the greatest theological, the I'm sorry, greatest knowledge of theology. He wants us to respond before him as we think through these four unanswerable questions. It doesn't mean that there are no answers, but that these are rhetorical questions for us to ponder and pause over. And the first question is found in the second half of verse 31 when he says, if God is for us. Who can be against us? You should know the answer by now, my guess is, if you didn't know it already. If God is for us, who can be against us? If Paul had said, who can be against us? Many answers can be given. One needs to look at verse 35 alone to list out a catalog of hardships. The essence of the question, however, is the first part when he says, if there is no doubt in Paul's mind that God is indeed for us. So more accurately, this might be asked as, since God is for us. We used the phrase before, or verse, do you not know? Isaiah 40 declares, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of heavens and the earth. This God, the creator God, is for you and I. It's a covenantal promise to be for us. For us indicates his covenantal commitment, his promise that he was and is and will be there for us. What's intriguing is that when you look at the book of Exodus and God appears before Moses to send him as his representative 
to bring his people out of Egypt, Moses did not say, you know what? I've been waiting for this for four decades. I've been training hard for this. I've been sharpening my speaking skills and I am ready to go. No, that's not what he said. He said, I am unworthy. I cannot speak well. And then nobody would believe me. There's a bit of self-pity involved here. And at this point, God did not say, you know what? You're much better than you think you are. Your talents are recognized by all. I think you'll do a great job. You just have to have confidence in yourself. That's not what God said. What God said is, I will go with you. I will go before you. I will speak on your behalf is what he said. For God is for us. If God is for us, scripture says, who can be against us? And the soft answer is no one and nothing. But the second question is just as important. Because Paul moves on to ask the second question by saying, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Verse 32. Again, Paul did not ask the question, will God not graciously give us all things? We could have said that there are many things that God did not provide. At best, an unequivocal answer. My guess is that just from our Christmas list last year, do you make Christmas lists anymore? That here there are things that we wished and desired, wanted and longed for, that he has not given. And I don't even mean just things. Here, whether it be our lives, our circumstances, our relationships, our families, our future, our past, there are many things we can say that God has not fully answered. But notice what Paul says. He first points out the costliness of our redemption. That's where he draws our attention. He begins by saying, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Romans 3, in verses 23 to 25, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His blood, we are told. In saving us, God went to the limit. There is not much more He could have done. We cannot know the pain felt by the Father and by Jesus upon that Calvary. Yet we can say this. If the measure of love is what it gives, then there never was such love as God showed to sinners at Calvary, and there never will be again. This is the point he drives home first. He who did not spare his own son... The first part of this verse makes the question possible. Arguing from greater to the lesser, Paul argues that all things will be given. Having given up his son, everything else pales in comparison in spite of our protests. Everything that is necessary and needed for our salvation, 
and everything that gets us home. He will provide for our needs. This goes counter to every impulse in our body as we try to serve God. The thought of safety first is often on our minds, but he says, trust me. I did not spare my own son for you. I will not spare anything that you need to get home in your life. As I was indicating before, I wonder how much of our image before God looks like young children. Uh, Jim Gaffigan is a funny comedian whom we love because he is fairly clean, and often it's an observational humor. One thing that he talks about in his book called Daddy is Fat, because, you know, that's what kids say, and here he talks about what it means to be a parent when he says... Parent requires a lot of acting and, truth be told, a lot of lying. Because what happens is that when your daughter goes and hides, usually in the middle of the room, with, his, with her head covered, thinking that she is somehow invisible because she has supernatural power, you're supposed to not say, I see you, you hid wrong. <laughs> That's not what you say. You say, where is Anna? Perfectly clear you see where she is. Oh, I cannot find her. She hid herself so well. Oh, there you are. I had no idea, is what he says. This is what we do as parents. And he's, I think one of the things that often we recognize from the word is that we are like that child to God. Oftentimes, having received incredible blessings from him, we forget what we received even the moment before. Day before, that's long history past. Here, we're unable to be grateful before God for too long. We're unable to come before God with thankfulness. For we often suffer from spiritual amnesia, like young children forgetting the blessings that they too have received. And what he's saying is, remember what I gave you? My son died for you. I demonstrated my love that while you were still sinner, my son died for you. He who did not spare his own son, why will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, Paul says. And the answer to this unanswerable question is, of course he will. Our problem, our problem is that we forget. But that's not, he's not done. Not only does he ask, if God is for us, who can be against us? Not only does he say, he who did not spare his own son, why will he not give us all things? He goes on to ask in verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Paul does not for a moment deny that Christians fail and fall, sometimes grievously. You have to look at Romans chapter 7 to recognize the struggle that you and I have that we talked about. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The bad that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. He also does not deny that there are many who does and will accuse us. Who? We can name several. Our conscience accuses us. Pricks at us for our sinfulness. The devil never ceases. In fact, the word diabolos actually means a slanderer. In addition, we doubtless have many human enemies who delight to point an accusing finger at us. 
But Paul emphatically denies that any lapses now can endanger our justified status. None of their allegations and charges can be sustained. The reason is simple. In this courtroom drama where God sits as our judge, nobody is in a position to get God's verdict overturned. God is the supreme court of our spiritual condition. He has declared in the sight of the whole world in his son, we are standing before him righteous. Not because of what we have done, not because of what we will do, because of Jesus Christ alone, who forgives us our sins by his blood and clothes us with his righteousness. Therefore, we are declared justified, righteous before the sight of God. That verdict cannot change. No one can overturn it. Even our sense of guilt, remorse, and shame that we often feel cannot overturn that decision. Preoccupation with self is always a major component of unfortunate, unhealthy guilt. The language of guilt is demanding, abusing, criticizing, rejecting, accusing, blaming, condemning, reproaching, and scolding. Yes, we feel guilty over sin where we acknowledge the wrong and feel remorse, but we must also embrace forgiveness recognizing that this is the promise. We look not inward, but to the cross. It is the objective promise of Jesus Christ we hold on to for our dear life. For Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice Boast in the hope of the glory of God. There is a build-up here, isn't it? Not only does he say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Not only does he point out, he who did not spare his own son, why will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He says, who will bring any charge against us? It is God who justifies no one and nothing. But he's not done. He gets to the final stage, doesn't he? In verse 35, he asks the pinnacle of questions that you and I already know the answer to. In fact, if we've been reading in Romans chapters 1 through 8, we know what this answer unequivocally is. Because the question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. We talked about the underestimation of love yesterday. That based upon our human condition of love, which is conditional, selfish, and often changing, we project our love to God and think that His love is like us and ours, therefore underestimating what it is. But no, Scripture reminds us that God's love is unconditional. It's sacrificial. It's unchanging. God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. But friends, I think you know Paul well enough to recognize that this is not just mere theory for him. 
He's not just articulating a hypothetical idea. This is a very personal one. Paul mentions multiple possibilities, seven in particular, possible oppositions to this union with God through Jesus Christ. He says, maybe trouble, hardship, persecution, that is pressures brought on to them by others around the world because of their faith in Jesus, which Paul knew something about. Famine, that is to say lack of our daily needs and sustenance. Nakedness, anger, sword. These are kind of interesting because Paul certainly knew all of them save the last one. Well, one thing we know through history, and it's legendary, but Paul being a Roman citizen meant that when he was rearrested, that is, not the incarceration that we see at the end of the book of Acts, but that when he is rearrested and incarcerated according to 2 Timothy, it's at that time he was executed, judged by the earthly tribunal. But when he was executed, he was beheaded. Ironically enough, although he did not know this yet, he eventually experienced a fear of sword upon his neck. Yet he remained faithful to him. These are things he knew, and he knew well. Even the last one he experienced before the end. Perhaps you and I have afflictions in life not listed here. Certainly, brothers and sisters, I've had my ups and downs in life, But, to be very honest, the Lord's been very gracious to us. I remember in um, uh, 2012, I called my mom and said, Happy anniversary. She said, It's not my anniversary. June 8th it was. It's not my anniversary, she said. Is it your anniversary? I said, No, it's not my anniversary either. But it's an anniversary of some sorts because we came in 1982, June 8th. My sister Sarah, who's here, was 10 or 11. I was 9 or 10. And then we had three younger ones. And I still remember those days where, um, you know, my youngest sister was two, five kids, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, obviously planned. And um, we, would, we would, in those first few years, I don't know what my parents were thinking, but having immigrated to a new country, new language, everything new, would take us to amusement parks like Disneyland. And they would look for a bench somewhere. And while we run around, they'll just sleep on the bench. Now, there were about 40 at that point. Now that I'm my age, I realize what they're doing. Uh, they're just survival mode. Uh, uh, you know, I only have two kids, but I too, when we go to amusement parks, send them to do what they need to do. And I look for air-conditioned room with a bench and just simply sit there. Tiki room in Disneyland is my favorite room. The most powerful air conditioning and benches for me to lie down on is the best place one can ask for. I don't know, I don't know what they were thinking immigrating at that point in time. But I, I was saying simply, happy anniversary to our 30th anniversary of being in the States. Uh, I remember afternoon, the LAX was, the International Tom Bradley Terminal was just a white dome. And my youngest sister, who was two, getting down, putting her face on the floor, saying, oh, this is cool, you should do it too, because it was hot for us. And beginning a new life at that point in time, adjusting to new culture, and new language. Sure, we've had our ups and downs, but the Lord's been very gracious to us. I'm sure you have many things to testify to, but just as much difficulties and afflictions, some 
far greater than I can say and I'm sure I can imagine. But here, this is the thing. He said, no matter what your circumstances in the past, nor present, nor the future, he simply says, there is nothing, he says, that can separate us from the love of God. Paul dares to argue, not only will we overcome these afflictions and difficulties, but we will triumph over them. We are more than conquerors. But here's the catch. This is not our own doing, according to verse 37, but through him who loved us, he says. He surely sustains us. The climactic thought to which Paul rises in his fourth question is that there is no separation from Christ's love. That can never befall us. And this is why he's saying it again out of conviction. He says, Paul ends with not, we know, but I am convinced. Not maybe, not perhaps, not I think. I am convinced that God is adequate to be our keeper as our end, he says. God will sustain us. What's he convinced of? He is convinced that nothing, literally nothing, can overcome the love of Christ. He mentions every possibility under heaven when he says, simply, neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And at this point in time, somebody clever might say, you know, you missed something, Paul. He has a bucket category, nor anything else in all creation. If I forget anything, it's in there. He says, we'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is why one commentator says, this is the furious love of God for his children. For his sons and daughters, God is furious in his love. Unrelenting, unremitting, unforgetting. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Here the answer is no one and nothing. Friends, I want to end with these words from the catechism that we grew up with, the Heidelberg Catechism. I've been mentioning thus far the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but that's not the catechism of my youth. As Pastor Randy briefly mentioned last night, the catechism of my youth was the Heidelberg Catechism. And even in my office at this point in time, it hangs on my wall. Because it's a reminder to us of the question it asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, already written five centuries ago, in the time of the Reformation, our fathers in faith knew what Scripture teaches when they wrote that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ because I belong to Him. By His Holy Spirit, 
assures of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. We are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, may the Lord bless you that this truth of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 summarize that we belong to Jesus Christ will be evident and present in your life daily. That our lips will sing praises to the Lord. Our lives will continue to reflect the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. And until the day we meet him face to face, may the Lord keep you and sustain you. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we confess that our lives are not our own, no matter what we think it may be in our daily walk, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to you, our faithful Savior. Thank you for loving us, that Jesus Christ died and resurrected for our forgiveness of sins and for our newness of life. Thank you for the Spirit who gives us strength, who gives us life, who prays for us, O Lord, who gives us perspective, who reminds us of your grace and reminds us to trust in you daily and testify that we are your sons and daughters. Remind us, O Lord, indeed, who we are to you. Remind us, O Lord, who you are to us so that daily, O Lord, being refreshed by the teaching of your word, we may live our lives faithfully empowered and strengthened by you. Bless the churches in Bakersfield, O Lord. Strengthen them in these turbulent times. Grant to them wisdom. Grant to them faithfulness. Grant to them backbones of steel that they may ever remain faithful to you. Raise up leaders among them, O Lord, who will proclaim your gospel faithfully without any fear. Protect the pastors that are here, O Lord, that indeed they may be faithful to your church and to your people, that daily as they get behind their podium, O Lord, and their pulpit, that their words may be powerful, spoken not because of their wisdom, but the truth that they declare in your word. May there be a rising of your church in Bakersfield to serve you and honor you. May it bring great joy and glory to your name. For we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.